Welcome to episode 30 of the Empowering Ability Podcast. Welcome to the Empowering Ability Podcast, where we get you and your loved ones impacted by disability the information needed to live a full and meaningful life. Now here's your host, Eric Gall. Hey friends, welcome to the Empowering Ability Podcast. Thanks for listening in today. Today, my guest is Brandon Porin, Principal Lawyer of Porin Law out of Toronto, Ontario. And Brandon and I have a great conversation around estate planning. Our focus on estate planning is to secure the financial future, to really to secure the future for people with disabilities, especially if they are a dependent. So they could be uh, a dependent if they're your son or daughter, or your brother or sister, or someone in the family, or a friend. And Brendan and I really start to dive into the details of estate planning. We go through the foundational document, uh, the will, which everybody should have one, but we can do a a good conversation about that and things you should be considering. Uh, We also get into the topic of consent and capacity. So we talk about at a high level, what is consent and capacity and what do you need to know about it for you and your loved ones? So we're going to jump right into it. Here's Brendan Porin. Hey, Brendan, welcome to the Empowering Ability Podcast. Thank you, Eric. It's a pleasure to be here. Yeah, thanks so much for coming on. Um, and so we've got the uh, principal uh, lawyer from Porin Law, Brandon Porin. And maybe, Brandon, if we could just start off by you telling us maybe just a little bit more about yourself and your firm. Sure. Yeah. So uh, as Eric mentioned, uh, I'm, I'm a lawyer here at Porin Law Professional Corporation. We're, we're located in uh, in Toronto and uh, and and provide advice to uh, individuals with uh, with disabilities, their families, and and organizations within the the disability sector here in Ontario, uh, British Columbia, and and Newfoundland. Um, the primary part of sort of my practice deals with uh, working with individuals and their families through uh, the estate planning process. So. Um, ensuring that uh, wills are in place and power of attorney documents and that all types of government ac- um, benefits are being um, accessed and, and that government benefits aren't affected, usually through uh, through the use of various types of, uh, of trusts. I also uh, provide advice, uh, quite a bit of advice in the area of consent capacity and legal decision-making law to individuals and families as well. So, the you know, in, in a nutshell, I'd say the majority of my practice really deals with um, promoting financial security, ensuring that the right types of plans are put in place for individuals as their parents age and, and eventually pass on. Right on. So for our listeners today, if you know the areas of financial security and securing uh, your son or your daughter or one of your relatives' uh, financial future is of interest, you're in the right spot and, uh, and also talking about con- consent and capacity. So we're going to touch on that today as well. And um, just for our listeners, most of our conversation today, in general, the high-level themes and topics apply across Canada, but um, Brandon does specialize in Ontario, so the context and maybe some of the details of our conversation will be Ontario specific. Um, so, Brandon, let's start with. Um, I, I want to get into the financial security piece, but before we get there, I'm just curious: why do you do what you do? Mm-hmm. Um, well, yeah, I, I guess that's a good question. I've always had an interest in in. Uh, in, in disability law, didn't really know where um, I was going to land when I uh, in, in in terms of uh, 
the the exact nature of the practice or where I was going to practice. Um, I, I grew up with disability in, in in my family, so I'd always been exposed to it. And uh, and um, you know, I working for disability organizations as a as a volunteer, as an employee, and and uh, and as a board member over the years just really helped to uh, to, to increase my interest. Right, right. So, would you say that? personal experience that you had with it um in in your family really pushed you in that direction or was it absolutely just a combination of things no it was definitely the personal experience um and sort of the, the the barriers and the obstacles and some of the challenges that i saw my siblings facing growing up uh really did um uh, you know sort of lead me towards uh, uh a disability law practice yeah yeah, well, good for you for for following that, and I I feel the the similar connection there, right, with with my sister Sarah and the work that um, that I'm doing now with podcast and coaching. Absolutely. So, um, so yeah, so that's awesome. Um, okay, so let's dive into it on a on a financial security piece. So, um, you know, a family comes to you and they're looking to set up um, an estate plan. What are some of the things that you would suggest that they start to to think about? The first thing that they want to think about is sort of uh, what are their objectives? Um, what are they trying to achieve with the estate plan? Um, if they have a, a relative, a family member with a disability, um, what does that person's life look like right now? And uh, what do they anticipate the person's life looking like in the future once they've once they've passed away? Ultimately, you want to get to a point where you're able to project um, what that person is going to need in terms of resources uh, to continue to sustain the quality of life that he or she is used to while while um, while the, the parents are alive um, so you know thinking about uh, your asset base thinking about um, any sources of income that will sort of kick in once a parents pass away like pensions and life insurance and that sort of thing thinking about how you want to divide your asset base amongst your amongst your children and again a lot of that is going to be driven by um, by your, your son or your daughter's needs and ultimately one of the main decisions is is, is really going to revolve around the the, the people that you're going to involve in your plan. So there are a number of different roles that need to be fulfilled. There's a, 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 an executor for your estate. There are trustees for any kind of trusts that you set up. There are attorneys that you're going to name in your power of attorney documents. If you've got minor children at home, they're going to be guardians that you need to consider. So um, a number of different roles. And, and I really do encourage people to think about the people that they want to fulfill those roles uh, sooner rather than later. Okay. And when you're thinking about people in these roles, um, is there any advice that you give to, to families on, um, what they should think about in terms of, uh, you know, the type of person or is there specific characteristics mm -hmm. or skills that they should be looking for in these folks that have these roles? Um, yeah, I mean, obviously, I mean, the, the, the most important trait is that the person, the individual will be trustworthy. Um, obviously they're going to, have access to your entire estate, which um, could be a considerable amount of money and and uh, with very little oversight. So you're you're going to want to ensure that that they're trustworthy and that they will be adhering to um, that the terms as as you've laid them out in your will. Um, someone who's conscientious, there are, you know a number of different steps involved with administering an estate and uh, a number of different deadlines associated with those steps. So someone who's conscientious in terms of uh, being very task oriented, um, someone who's able to 
access the right kinds of professionals to help with administering the estate as well. So whether that be lawyers, accountants, financial planners um, to assist with the administration. Um, and, uh, you know, ideally somebody who has some sort of, uh, uh, relationship with your, with, with your beneficiaries also, that's, it's, it's, it's not necessary. It's more of a nice to have if, if at all possible. Okay. Yeah. Those are some good things to consider. Um, so it sounds like kind of the will is a really key fundamental part of the estate plan. Is that, is that valid with, with saying that? For sure. It, it, it's your foundational, it's, it's the foundational piece, really the foundational pillar of your estate plan, I would say. And, uh, from there, you know, uh, the will in and of itself is going to likely incorporate a number of different tax planning strategies, uh, a number of different trusts. It's going to identify people to fulfill most of those roles. Um, it's, uh, you know, really going to have a significant impact on on what kind of financial security ends up being developed for the beneficiaries of your estate. Okay. So it's super important to have a will. Um, and from what I've read, the stats are, I think, approximately 50% of people have wills or something like that. Yeah, I don't know what the latest stats are, but, but you know, my... Uh, my latest read was that more people than than not have wills in place. So, uh, yeah, it, it's something that I think we find people put off doing, and understandably so, but not really understanding the impact um, <clears throat> that not having a will will have on uh, the beneficiaries of, of of their estate right. and the costs associated, the disruptions to plans of care that result from not having a will in place. Do you have any um, either examples of stories of, of families that have come to you after the fact where there wasn't a will in place and then you're working with them to try and pick up those pieces or create a solution after the fact? Oh, yeah. I mean, there, there, we, we, we do – we help uh, individuals all the time uh, with respect to or in relation to administration of estates. And I would say probably, I don't know, maybe close to 40% of our files are, are, are what we call an intestacy. And, and this is someone applying to become an estate trustee, uh, when the deceased has not left a will in place. Um, and I can, I can tell you just from experience, it usually, uh, ends up costing the estate a lot more money because <clears throat> there's additional legal work that needs to take place. Um, uh, everything in the individual's estate becomes subject to an, ad an additional tax, which is, could have otherwise been uh, completely avoided or in most cases at least minimized. Um, so, yeah, I, I, I would you know really encourage those who, who uh, don't have a will in place, especially if you're a family member or if you're a family that has a, a family member with, uh, with a disability to, to start working on this process sooner rather than later. Right. Can you give us an idea of what the range of that cost might be? So if you don't have a will in place and you pass away, um, you know, for some of those clients, is it, are we talking like $10,000? Are we talking hundreds of thousand dollars? Can you give us an idea of what that cost might be? Yeah. I mean, it obviously depends on, um, on, on which lawyer you're using and, uh, you know, where you live and, and what your needs are, how complex your estate is. Um, but, you know, I, I would say for your typical um, couple that is uh, going to see a lawyer looking to put wills, trusts, powers of attorney, and that sort of thing in place, 
you're probably looking at spending around $2,500 okay. in that neighborhood. Yeah, so to set it up. So it's pretty, I mean, it's not too expensive uh, to set it up. But I guess my question is around for if parents pass away and they have uh, a son or a daughter that's uh, a dependent with a disability and the will is not in place, I guess I'm curious what the what the financial difference could be. Well, it, the, the impact would be significant. The most notable impact will be um, related to the beneficiary's loss of social assistance benefits, most likely. So um, for, for many of our families, their sons or their daughters um, rely on, uh, on uh, benefits from the Ontario Disability Support Program, uh, which amount to you know, just under $1,200 a month. And um, <clears throat> in addition to prescription drug coverage and dental coverage and vision coverage as well, uh, a number of disability-related benefits associated with that, uh, with that program also. So depending on the size of the inheritance, generally speaking, if the inheritance is going to exceed about $40,000, um, you know, without doing proper planning and having the right kind of will in place, uh, their, their family members' ODSP benefits is going to be affected. Okay. So it's really that the ODSP, um, or it could, you know, maybe something, uh, different in depending on where you are, um, in Canada or in the world. But so those government that be- loss of government benefits, because the individuals, because the beneficiaries are holding more than the, uh, allowable amount of assets. Yeah, that's, that's definitely, uh, one of the issues. And I think I would say another one of the issues, um, <clears throat> relates to, if, if your son or your daughter requires support when it comes to the management of finances, the will allows you to put a trustee in place to help manage those finances. Without a trust in place for individuals who require support, it could unfortunately result in uh, the triggering of a court-appointed guardian, which is not not ideal in, in most situations. Okay, so let's let's get into the trust conversation then. So, um, I think earlier you mentioned Henson Trust. So, can you can you talk to us a little bit about trusts and the different types of trusts? Sure. So, there are a couple of different types of trusts that we use, and I'll I'll, I'll try not to, to be overly complicated here. Uh, the first one deals with or is referred to uh, is what we refer to as an inheritance trust or an ODSP, sometimes even referred to as a sheltered trust. Um, <clears throat> That trust can be non-discretionary in nature, meaning that you can leave prescribed directions or instructions in your will to the trustee when it comes to um, administering those trust funds and dispersing those trust funds. For example, I may say that I want to the trustee to disperse $500 a month to the beneficiary of the estate to um, – or sorry, to the beneficiary of the trust for everyday living expenses. The problem with that trust is that it's limited to $100,000. Um, and so it's not something that we that we use in the majority of our estate plans. Um, instead, we typically incorporate what's called a Henson Trust. The, the Henson Trust is a little bit different. The Henson Trust is is discretionary in nature. It's an absolute discretionary trust, meaning that um, the trustee has full discretion, full authority to make decisions related to dis- the disbursement of funds from that trust. Um, it, it's not considered an asset for ODSB purposes, and it doesn't have any kind of monetary limit. Um, 
we also want to ensure there, there's some tax implications that you've got to think through um, as well when going through the, 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 the planning process. You want to ensure that your Henson Trust is, is, is qualifies as, as what's referred to as a, a qualified disability trust. This would help with, when it comes to the taxation rates applied to the income generated by the trust on an annual basis. And finally, we typically incorporate something called a, a, a lifetime benefit trust for testators, those, those drafting their wills, that have uh, RRSPs or uh, RIFs in place, the retirement savings in place. It's a way that we're able to uh, roll over uh, proceeds from a retirement savings account into this new type of uh, lifetime benefit trust on a, on a tax-deferred basis. Okay. So you're, so essentially the beneficiary of your RDSP, if they had a, a disability would basically take over that, that R, that RDSP or that RIF and they would now basically be able to use that for their own use at whatever their marginal tax rate is. Yeah. Like that, th- those, those proceeds would, so let's say I were to pass away with a hundred thousand dollars in my in my RRSP or in my RIF, uh, and and I didn't have a spouse uh, to roll it over to, mm-hmm. um, my estate would be on the hook for for you know about fifty thousand dollars in tax on that on that money. Instead, I can leave a provision if I have a son or a daughter to split. I can leave a provision that that money who was dependent on me at the time of death, um, I can leave a provision that allows the estate trustee to roll that RRSP or that RIF money into a lifetime benefit trust for the individual. And if I do that, the full amount can roll to this trust um, without having to pay tax on the uh, on the proceeds. Right. Okay. And are these trusts something that you create when, when you're living or are they s- statements that go into your will and be, and are created once you're no longer here? Yeah. For the majority of our families, they're looking at leaving instructions in their wills for these trusts to be created, uh, uh, once they pass away, or typically once both parents pass away, they're referred to as, as testamentary trusts. Uh, for some families, we do uh, we do draft inter vivos trusts. Those are, are, are living trusts that become active right away. Um, and and in some situations, there's you know there's a, 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 a factor that's driving the creation of a living trust. But for the most part. Uh, we're leaving instructions in the will for the trust to come into effect after the person passes away. Okay. And what's an example of a reason to have a living trust? There, there are many families that, that have been coming to see us lately who may be purchasing a home, a house, or a condo for their son or their daughter. And often it makes sense to hold that in a trust. So we'll be creating an inter vivos trust to, uh, to, to hold that piece of real property. There may be situations where there are a number of different family members who are uh, who've made it known that they're going to be con- they 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 want to uh, leave a bequest they want to leave a gift to a particular person. Um, so instead of um, going through a comprehensive kind of uh, trust exercise in each will to ensure that you know you've got five or six different Henson trusts set up. You may create a living trust and then share the name of that living trust with, with other family members. It gets uh, quite complicated. <laughs> yeah, I can see why, I can see why people need to come talk to you, Brennan. Yeah. Um, 
Okay, so we talked about the will, and then we've talked about some of the tools inside of the will um, being trusts. What are some of the other things that we need to consider um, with estate planning? You know, the, the will is very important, obviously. Uh, tax planning, I think I've touched on, is is, is huge. Um, for, for the majority of uh, uh, wills that we review, we, we see that that whole tax planning element is is missing, and, and that could be the difference between you know, uh, leaving an estate of $200,000 or leaving an estate of $400,000. You want to consider uh, life insurance policies. Do you have life insurance policies in place? And if you do have them in place, who are the named beneficiaries? Because remember, ODSP doesn't really discriminate, you know, regardless of whether or not the money is coming from the the will or from the estate or, or life insurance policy, it's going to be treated in a similar manner. You also want to ensure that you think through, uh, you know, what, uh, have you appointed anyone to make decisions on your behalf if you're unable to do so when you're still alive? So power, power of attorney documents are, are very important. In Ontario, we have two kinds of power of attorney documents. We have a power of attorney for personal care that encompasses decisions related to health care, hygiene, nutrition, safety, shelter, and clothing. And we have a continuing power of attorney for property as well. Okay. I've got a bunch of questions that came out of that. So, okay. um, we see you left off on power of attorney. Um, let's stay there for a second. So what maybe when should we be considering a power of attorney? You know, if you're 16 and able to give a power of attorney for personal care, everyone should have one in place. If you're 18 and able to give a power of attorney for property, everyone should have one in place as well. So um, there are legal thresholds that everybody has to uh, meet in order to grant power of attorney or even to make a will. So there's a level of understanding and appreciation that's required when it comes to uh, uh, when it comes to to, to to making these documents. But anybody who can should, uh, because you know the reality is if I'm over 18 and um, I'm in an accident and I'm in hospital. And uh, I'm unable to say, let's man- to say, manage my property. No one can access my assets or my bank accounts to pay my bills, to take care of my dependents without a power of attorney document in place. Um, so those are things everybody should consider. And then I think, and it, there's also this consideration in a lot of the clients that you work with. There's a family member that has a disability or a developmental uh, or intellectual disability. So for those folks, does a power of attorney? Does power of attorney documents really um, – can they get a power of attorney document? And I guess how does that work? Yeah, I mean everyone's level of, of ability and, and uh, to, to meet these legal, legal thresholds uh, differ. So regardless of who walks through our office door, we're, we're doing sort of an, uh, asking a series of questions to ensure that those legal thresholds are met. So th- there are many individuals with, with intellectual disabilities that we've met with who've, who have uh, powers of attorney in place. Um, some are able to, to meet the thresholds and, and others aren't. Okay. And for if, if a family has a, a son or a daughter with a disability, should they be thinking about a will for that individual as well um, over and above themselves? Yeah. So again, it, it'll depend on whether or not the person is able to meet the legal threshold, whether or not the person has what's called referred to as testamentary capacity. Um, so again, are they able to kind of understand and appreciate what a, what a will is and what the, 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 the impact of a will is? Um, does the person have assets um, that they would eventually need to dispose of? Um, for some of our families, their, their family members may only have an RDSP. 
um, which could in and of itself be a considerable asset, grow to be a considerable asset over time. So, um, you know, for, excuse me, more and more people uh, since the inception of, since the RDSB did come around, um, putting a will in place does make sense. Okay. Okay. So that, that answers that question. And so just going back to what you were saying earlier, you mentioned life insurance policies. When does life insurance make sense for a family? Mm-hmm. More, more, more of a question to, to ask a financial advisor. Um, but, but generally speaking, um, life insurance is, is usually a cost effective way of topping up what's left in your estate. Um, so a lot of our families will, let's say, buy uh, an additional life insurance policy specifically to fund the Henson Trust in addition to a portion of their estate. So again, you're assessing, you know, what are what are the anticipated needs of my beneficiaries? Uh, what am I going to be leaving behind in my estate? What other income sources are going to be triggered? Is there an RDSP in place? And, and that may impact whether or not it makes sense to take out life insurance. But, but again, a question more more applicable to a financial advisor. Right. So when you're looking at, I guess, what's the cost, the living cost for that individual and what are their revenue sources? And if those revenue sources are coming up short or that asset base isn't big enough, then life insurance is a, an option to look at. Yeah, exactly. And the other thing that I wrote down that you mentioned earlier was around tax savings. Um, and tax strategies. Do you have any maybe examples of um, either of those tax strategies or of maybe a client that you've worked with and kind of what that tax strategy looked like and how much that might have saved them? Sure. Um, I mentioned a, a little while ago the uh, the idea of behind a lifetime benefit trust. And there's one family, one client that we worked with, she she was terminally ill and she'd asked us to do her estate plan. She was leaving behind a, a son with an intellectual disability in his mid-20s who uh, was completely financially dependent on her. And um, we were able to incorporate some provisions in her will that allowed us to roll over her RRSP proceeds um, to a lifetime benefit trust and or her son's RDSP. And she had a fairly significant pension. We were able to take the commuted value of the pension and, and deposit that into her, her RRSP. And uh, by doing so, it, it resulted in uh, a net savings to her estate of over $200,000, um, which is incredibly significant, especially given how young uh, her son was and and what his needs were on an on an on a uh, on an annual basis, right? Yeah, so I, that highlights the importance of talking with professionals that understand these mechanisms that are that are available and getting that help because it might cost a little bit of money up front, but the opportunity cost of not doing it can be huge, right? Up Absolutely, to, you know, two hundred thousand dollars in this case, right? Absolutely, absolutely. Okay. Awesome. Okay. The other two things that that come to mind, Brennan, are ODSP itself and RDSPs. Could you maybe just touch on those two things in terms of, you know, more things that, you know, ODSP would be, um, you know, an income source for an individual with disability. And then the RDSP, I guess, is an investment, but also an income source. Could you just touch on those? 
Sure. Yeah. So I, we usually start some of our when we when we do in person seminars with a, a brief overview of ODSP because it helps to provide a context for why estate planning is so important if if you have a son or a daughter with it or a family member with a disability. Um, ODSP is Ontario's provincial income support program um, that that provides a, a, a wide range of benefits to individuals with disabilities between the ages of 18, 18 and 65 through uh, the province's social assistance program or social social assistance framework. So the main benefit associated with ODSP is the, the, the monthly check that a person receives, which um, is just under $1,200 a month. And um, person's also eligible for a wide range of other benefits, including prescription drug coverage, uh, dental, vision, disability-related uh, benefits, employment supports, and, and those sorts of things. ODSP has a number of uh, rules associated with the amount of money a person can earn and the amount of assets a person can own. And once you exceed those limits, you jeopardize your eligibility for ODSP. So generally speaking... If a person on ODSP were to inherit any money or inherit, you know, generally over $40,000, depending on their current asset level, it could result in, in them, in their, OD, in their, sorry, in their eligibility for ODSP being affected. So if ODSP, the bottom line is if ODSP is going to be an important resource for that individual throughout that individual's life, then without proper estate planning, if that person does inherit from your estate, it's going to affect their eligibility for the program. Right. So, um, and those limits just change, right? Brennan, my understanding is uh, our good friend, Helen Reese, and uh, I think you did, you were helping out a little bit as well, um, got the, those, the gifts and asset limits changed. Is that correct? Yeah, we've been part of a few working groups over, over the last couple of years that, um, to, uh, you know, was advocating for an increase to the income and asset limits. And, and Helen did a wonderful job in, in achieving that with the provincial government um, a few months ago. So the uh, asset limit for a single individual was raised from 5000 to, to $40,000. And the income limits, so th- this is the amount that an ODSP recipient can receive in the form of, vol- of a voluntary gift or payment in any 12-month period, was raised from six thousand to ten thousand dollars. Perfect. Well, thank you to to you and Helen, everybody involved doing that work. And uh, I think that there's a general sentiment that it's moving in the right direction, but it's still not enough compared to, to like in a province like British Columbia because the limits are much higher. Is it two hundred k in assets that you're able to hold? In British Columbia, you can you can uh, you, you can have a hundred thousand dollars in assets. Uh, but I, I in my, in my opinion, more importantly, they eliminated the limit on on income so in other words a, a person on social assistance can receive or receiving disability related social assistance P, uh, pwd it's called out in bc can uh, there is no limit in terms of what they can receive in the form of a voluntary gift or payment and that makes a big difference a huge difference yeah Okay. And can you just touch on RDSP briefly? We've, we've talked about it a couple times on the podcast, but I think it's one of those things where um, <laughs> more information is better than not enough. Sure. Yeah. I mean, RDSPs is something that we've been quite involved with uh, uh, for the past 10 years. It, it, it forms a pillar of our, of our uh, family's estate and financial plans now. Um, it's probably one of the most progressive income support programs in the world for uh, for individuals with uh, with disabilities. In in a nutshell, 
it functions very much like an RESP or an RRSP, whereby you're opening up an account with a financial institution, that account becomes registered, you're able to contribute to the account, uh, the government contributes to the account as well, the, the monies can be invested, they grow on a tax-deferred basis over time with the overall objective of building up a decent-sized nest egg for the beneficiary of the plan to access later in life. So with the RDSP, the, the federal government's going to contribute up to $90,000 over the course of the uh, the beneficiary's lifetime. It's uh, it's a wonderful plan. As an asset, it's exempt in, in, in most Canadian provinces, and uh, income coming out of that, th- those plans are exempt in, in not all, but most Canadian provinces as well, including Ontario. Okay, perfect. So I'm going to link to the resource that Partners for Planning has on RDSP because there's some really good literature on that. And um, Brennan, I know that you've been involved with Partners for Planning as well. So um, I'll link over to that. And then, um, yeah, if folks are interested, you can go read up more on the RDSP there. Okay, so we've talked quite in depth about estate planning. Is there anything else that um, we haven't talked about that you wanted to mention on estate planning, Brennan? Um, no, I think, I mean, I think there's a lot more that we can talk about, but I, we, we definitely don't want to overwhelm people, I think, uh, in, 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 uh, too much in, in, in one podcast. Um, you know, my, I think kind of concluding remarks on, on estate planning would be to kind of, um, kind of organize your information and, and, and think about the, the different people that, that you may in, involve in your plan. Take things step by step. Not everything has to be done overnight. You know, certain aspects of your estate plan are more urgent than others. And ultimately, ensure that you kind of select the right type of professionals to, to assist with putting that plan together, uh, including lawyers, uh, financial advisors, and, and tax accountants. Perfect. Lots of stuff for, for folks to think about. And um, if you don't have a will go get a will. So let's switch gears for a minute to consent and capacity because you mentioned some of your work focuses there. So can you just explain to us in high level terms, what is consent and capacity and why is it important? Well, consent and capacity is, is, is kind of part of the estate planning process in a sense. But, but when I, when I talk about consent, consent and capacity, I'm talking about a person's right to exercise their their legal capacity, and so you know our our laws in Ontario are uh, with respect to consent and capacity aren't aren't very good. Uh, a person is either considered capable or 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 not, and if they're incapable, then um, for many people it's 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 very difficult for them to uh, to, to to exercise their legal capacity. Meaning. Um, the way our laws are are written, a lot of people are subjected, unfortunately, to court-appointed guardians because there aren't any other options in place. So um, generally speaking, uh, a lot of our work does kind of focus on uh, uh, law reform initiatives that um, uh, address the gaps in or what I perceive to be gaps in, in consent capacity and legal decision-making legislation here in the province. In particular, when going through your estate plan, um, as I mentioned, you know, having your will in place is, 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 is one piece of it. Your, your will encompasses instructions for your trustees once you pass away, but it's, it's equally important to ensure that you've set things up while in, in such a way that you've authorized other people to make decisions for you when you're still alive and, and may need support in, in making those types of decisions. And that's primarily done through power of attorney documents. Okay. And a question that's coming to my mind is how is it determined if someone's capable or, or incapable? 
Well, it, it depends on the type of decision that has to be made. So, I mean, not very many people are subjected to a formal capacity assessment unless, um, usually unless a guardianship application is being made. But, you know, let's say I, I'm, I'm going to see my, my doctor and uh, he or she is pre- prescribing me with, uh, with some form of treatment. Uh, the doctor should be assessing whether or not I'm, I'm capable of, of providing consent to that treatment at that time for that particular treatment. And if I'm capable, then I make my own decision. If I'm not, then someone has to make that decision for me. Okay. So it sounds like these the decisions on capable versus not capable might be somewhat subjective. Like one person could say yes and one person could say no, they're not capable. Absolutely. And again, it depends on the type of decision that has to be made. So I may be perfectly capable, considered to be perfectly capable of choosing where I want to live, but not necessarily capable of make, of providing consent to a complex medical procedure. Right. Okay. So if in this example, the person is deemed not capable of consenting to that complex medical procedure, um, then what would happen? Then uh, the the medical practitioner, the doctor, would have to seek consent from what we call a, a substitute decision maker. And within the healthcare context, that could be a guardian of the person, that could be someone appointed by way of power of attorney document, someone appointed by something called the consent capacity board. If, if none of those three instruments are in place, then uh, family members in, in a specified order would have, uh, would have the authority. So first a spouse or a common law partner, if no spouse or common law partner, then a parent or child, if not, then a sibling, if not, then, then any other relative. Okay. And you mentioned the the way the law is structured in Ontario is not very good. Um, what would better look like? Yeah, it's a big question, probably probably for another podcast. But I mean, what we've been advocating for is is uh, a concept uh, known as as supported decision making. So, uh, legal recognition of um, the fact that that we all require. Um, supports in our lives to, to, to make decisions and, uh, and those supports should be legally recognized. So, um, you know, the, the premise that, that everybody has a right to exercise their legal capacity and, uh, for those individuals who may not be deemed capable of granting powers of attorney, uh, there should be other options in place and currently there, there are not. Okay. And would an example of a group that would be involved with supported decision-making, would an example of that be like a micro board for an individual? Um, informally, uh, it could. It could be a micro board. It could be, you know, an informal network of friends and, and family. The, the problem is that there is no legal mechanism that would, that would uh, recognize that micro board as a supporter or, or, you know, an informal network of, of friends or family members. So, Okay. That's what's that's what's needed here in Ontario. Right. Okay. And that's what you're advocating for. Yes. Okay. Right on. Well, thank you for doing that work. Awesome. So there's lots of stuff in this podcast for uh, for folks to think about. Brennan, if you know, I'm someone out there, and this is kind of you know, it gives me a bit of an idea of what I could do, but I still have questions. Where can people go to learn more, or how can they contact you? Sure. So um, they can jump onto our website, pruinlaw.com. Um, and uh, our contact information is there. We also have a, a bunch of resources on our website. I'd encourage everyone to uh, to, to look through a free publication um, that we 
we uh, produced in in conjunction with Community Living Ontario. It's the Inspiring Possibilities Estate Planning Guide. Um, and uh, like I said, it's free publication. I believe we have a link to it on our website. Uh, you can go to Community Living Ontario's website or the direct URL is www.planinspiringpossibilities.com. And uh, I think another great resource is uh, the Partners for Planning um, online hub where they, they have uh, uh, access to a number of different uh, webinars and, and other materials to help through the planning process. Okay, awesome. I'm going to link to all those things you just mentioned in the show notes as well as the blog so people can easily access those. So, um, Brendan, it's uh, been an honor having you on the podcast and thanks for coming on and sharing all this important information uh, around estate planning and uh, consent and capacity. So thanks so much. Oh, Eric, thanks for reaching out anytime. Okay, thanks, Brendan. We'll talk soon. Take care. Big, big thank you to Brendan for coming on the podcast today and such good information packed into this one. I encourage all of you out there to uh, to get a will if you don't have one. After listening to this podcast, there might be some things within your will that you might want to update. And I think this is one of those podcasts where you might want to sit down and re-listen to it with your notebook out and take some notes down. And it's so important to have the right professionals on your team when building these documents and building out the will and your strategy uh, for your estate plan, because it could be the difference between tens of thousands of dollars uh, that you're leaving for for your loved ones or or dependents. So, um, yeah, sit down with this one again, listen to it, write down some notes, and there might be might be some things in here that uh, you might want to take to your your lawyer or your tax specialist uh, to have a conversation about and to potentially add into your plan. Um, I also encourage you to, if you don't have those professionals, to reach out to Brandon or if you want to, your documents or your strategy looked at, uh, reach out to Brandon and, and his team. And if housing is something that you're working on, uh, feel free to go to the website and get the free download on creating your home. So there's this great workbook that's going to help guide you through creating your vision and starting to implement your vision for what your home looks like. So go on over to the website. It's empoweringability.org. And I think you'll get a lot of value out of that. I'd like to thank all of our listeners that have left us a review on iTunes. Your reviews help me understand what I'm doing well, what I can improve on on the podcast, what you want to hear. So it's great feedback that you're providing. So please continue to do so. Also, by leaving a five-star review, it helps other people find the podcast. So thanks so much for those reviews and keep them coming. Next week on the podcast, we wrap up our mini series on housing. So it's episode six of six on housing for people with disabilities. And we have an exciting guest, Jessica Cave from the organization Bridges to Belonging. And Jess has worked for the last year specifically just helping families and people with disabilities to 
find and create their own home. So Jess shares the process that she uses when facilitating family, facilitating for families on creating their home. And she also shares some of the innovative solutions that these families have implemented. So some great ideas will be shared for you to think about to see if they might apply for you and your loved ones. So uh, keep an eye out for that podcast coming up next week. And as always, thanks so much for listening today and I'll catch you next week. Thanks for listening to today's podcast. Visit us at empoweringability.org for more podcasts and resources to help you and your loved ones impacted by disability build a full and meaningful life.